Guys, before I kick off this episode, I wanted to mention the Eastman's Mule Deer course uh, that is presented by Dan Picard and Brian Barney. And these are two of like some of the best mule deer hunters that I've ever personally met. Uh, really love this course. It's the perfect time of year to jump on at Eastman's.com and check this course out. It's, it's a really good deal for you. They go through everything from safety to training and preparation, you know, to choosing a hunt, making a hunt plan, gear, scouting, glassing, field judging, rifle hunting, bow hunting, hunt strategy, all sorts of stuff, all evolving around mule deer hunting. And it, this is the time of year because we're just kind of inching our way into October and coming out a lot of a lot of these elk hunts for uh, us September hunters. And now it's time to focus on elk, or I'm sorry, on mule deer hunting. And if you're anything like me, you're pretty nutty about it. And you are going to like this episode. Speaking of Eastman's uh, hunting journals, I've got my buddy Brandon from Eastman's on for this episode. Let's kick it off. There exists a threat from anti-hunting groups to politicians trying to give our land away, and we won't stand for it. Those vast western landscapes provide the space for our wildlife to thrive and a place for hunters and anglers to fuel the fire that sparks their soul. In this show, we share our love of hunting, fishing, and conservation. Here, we provide the foundation to meet these threats through passion and the grit of the American outdoorsman. Welcome to the Western Huntsman Podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to this episode of the Western Huntsman Podcast. This is Jim Huntsman, your host, coming at you hot and heavy from the Broken Tine studio right here in North Idaho, Clark Fork, Idaho, that is. Uh, guys, welcome back to the show. Um, hope you are having a uh, one hell of a hunting season. I never know quite what to say when I'm recording during hunting season because I know a lot of you are out there. And uh, I've been out there a lot. Uh, if you if you heard last week's episode, you've you heard about my September. So we are recovering from that whole incident. And if you haven't heard the story, go back and check out the episode. I called it uh, Fire on the Mountain. Um, quite the epic tale there. So uh, on this episode, I've got my buddy from over at Eastman's Hunting Journals. His name is Brandon Mason joining us. And Brandon is well i'm gonna actually have him describe what he does at eastman's but he's a wildlife biologist that now works for eastman's uh down there in powell wyoming and uh he is a wealth of information so brandon thanks for joining me man i appreciate you coming on the show oh man we've been trying to line this up for weeks haven't we but i know season's here and we're all busy <laughs> i know we had a, I, I i thought for some reason it was probably my fault i'm like i'm pretty sure i've got it scheduled with brandon and and I, I think I sent you a text message or something, and, and you were out bear hunting uh, up in Canada, right? Is yeah, that, yep. That was a sweet bear, man. Tell us about that bear. That was a hunt of a lifetime. It was uh, uh, part of something that um, we fell into because of pro membership sweepstakes that Mike Deming has going on. Uh-huh. And uh, there was kind of an oddball cancellation opportunity, last-minute deal, and and the guys at work are like, hey, you want to go up to Canada and, and uh, hunt giant black bear and crush waterfall in the morning? I'm like, is this a trick question? Or I don't <laughs> Twist <laughs> Of course my I arm. want to go do that. Twist my arm. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, you know, up until this past year or well, the last couple of years, I suppose, I really hadn't had much 
inkling to to bear hunt i guess i I wasn't just didn't really i guess hit my radar i don't know why probably because in the springtime i'm usually chasing turkeys around and in the Mm -hmm. fall i'm doing you know so many other things and it just never really hit my radar and i don't know what it was but something came uh over me that i i just want to get into bear hunting and got to come out into your neck of the woods actually and hunt with the cryptic guys this past spring and uh and shot my first black bear shot with a bow and then this opportunity came up in canada i'm like yeah i can't get enough of it ever since i arrowed uh, my first black bear this spring i am hopelessly addicted to black bear hunting especially with a bow and uh anyway yeah so we went up drove uh, todd helms our editor at eastman's and head of our wingman brand we uh drove 20 hours up to a place called la crete alberta and my 17 year old son got to come with and, and run the video camera for us as he's done on occasion whoa, whoa, uh, for whoa. me over the years brandon you have a 17 year old son i do yep How 17 old year old you? son I'm 45. Oh, gotcha. That okay. That explains it, dude. You do not look 45, man. I'm not saying that to be flatter. I'm not flirting with you or anything. It just, I, I didn't think you were. I, I, I would have never guessed you were old enough to have a 17 year old son. So, well, I'm, I'm telling you, I'm starting to feel it. <laughs> I'm starting to feel 45. Yeah, you would be uh, old, man. But no, it's uh. So anyway, we we went up to uh, Alberta, and I mean, this is a pretty big statement because I've been hunting all my life. And of course, I've, I've worked for Eastman's now for a dozen years, and I've got to do some crazy cool opportunities that I've never, you know, without working here, I probably wouldn't have had the opportunity to do some of the things I've done. And uh, this is probably, this bear hunt was probably the funnest hunting trip I've ever done in my life. It was an absolute blast. There was just tons of black bear up there. Oh, I, I couldn't believe it. I mean, in and uh, the, the bear that I ended up arrowing was on, I can't remember the second or third day and we'd already looked over tons of bears every day. There's just multiple uh, stocking opportunities and uh, it was feeding along a field edge. I was down on my knees because I was trying to cut it off uh, to the edge of this field and I got ahead of it barely and dropped to my knees, drew my bow back. It stepped out of the the oat field and I thought I was going to get a broadside shot. It turns and it starts walking right at me. And when it was about 18 yards uh, coming towards me, it was it angled just a little bit to where I had a quartering toward shot, and I, I shot and uh, crushed its front shoulder and hit its first lung, and uh, we, you know we gave it some time, obviously, but it was pretty exciting after that because it was very vocal, also, and yeah, and it's funny because on the way up there, my son said, uh, you know, he's just at that age where he wants a lot more adventure and he doesn't like the day to day, you know, humdrum stuff of life, and. And he's like, I just, man, I just feel like I need some adventure, Dad. I just, ah. And then this <laughs> happened, and I'm like, well, how's that for you? Yeah. How, and, about, uh, how about a little trip to Canada to shoot black bears? Well, and and the thing with these black bear up in um, northern Alberta, they're some of the largest black bear in uh, North America. And Dude, so yeah. you're basically sh- you're hunting a bear that's the size of a small grizzly, and, uh, and maybe not even a small grizzly, kind of an average-sized yeah. grizzly. And uh, I mean, I've, I've sent you the picture and, and compared to my little cinnamon phase uh, black bear that I shot in Idaho uh, this spring, that thing looks like a, a, a little puppy compared a, to this thing that yeah. I shot up in Canada. It's a freaking so. Volkswagen, man. I couldn't believe it when you <laughs> you sent me that. And I, I so I didn't know you were in Canada. I, I was like, what the hell, man? Is that like, is that a Wyoming black bear? And, and so that was like my first kind of reaction. 
Um, and it was, it, it's just, it, it's interesting because uh, I, I, you said something I want to go back to. So I'm trying not to forget while I'm talking about this huge bear you got, but, um, <laughs> yeah, the, the two bears that I, I shot this year, if you added them together, wouldn't be as big as that bear. I, I'm serious. And, and to your point about comparing it to a grizzly, we have grizzlies here in North Idaho and you know, I see trail cam picks and, and other, other picks all over the place here in North Idaho. That bear is like bigger than most of the grizzly bears I'm seeing up here. Uh, so yeah, it was it was tank. gigantic. Yeah, it, it was one of those things that even the I mean, again, that area is known for giant black bear, but even the the guides because uh, up there you have to hunt with uh, an outfitter and the guides that we were with, which were some of the best people I've ever met in my life, by mm-hmm. the way. But they were they do this every day, right? They 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 know their apex predators big time and. They uh they saw that once we got up on it and went oh my gosh that thing is huge <laughs> and uh, yeah in, in the here's the craziest part obviously you, you know you're trying to shoot a giant boar right mm-hmm. and uh, up there they don't have quotas on uh, x amount of sows and they shut the season down or nothing so they're just overrun with black bear and uh, that bear that I shot believe it or not is a sow no kidding. And I obviously uh, shooting it, I thought it was a boar because it's oh, so yeah. big. Yeah, I would have never and, guessed uh, a sow. Even the guides, like once we rolled it over, they started laughing. Like you got to be kidding me! That's so they crazy, were crazy, man. He they were blown away by the size. Yeah, yeah, they were blown away by the size. And then on top of that, that it was a female, just unheard of. Huh? So, wow, man, yeah. that, that's incredible. What uh, did you get the skull measured? I haven't yet. No, it's been such a whirlwind during hunting season. I haven't even. Yeah. It's part of, I should have done it right away. We were up there. I just didn't. It was late. The, the days are really long up there. And so mm-hmm. honestly, the furthest thing from my mind was putting a tape on it because um, Todd Helms shot a really nice bear also up there with his bow. And by the time we got his taken care of that first night or first or second night, um, I think we went to bed at like three in the morning and because the days are long, you know, especially oh, yeah. really far up north. And, and then you get up, uh, you know, at 3 to 3.30 in the morning to go shoot uh, geese and a little bit of ducks, but mostly geese. And then you crash back at the cabin for a few hours and then go out at 4 o'clock again and hunt till dark, which is 9.30. Drive back to the cabin about an hour. Then you eat supper at 10.30. And then you just do it all over again the next day and you get up at 3 again. And so it's a marathon of a week, but mm-hmm. it's... It's such a good time. Yeah, it's sounds, so fun. Sounds miserable. Sounds absolutely miserable. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I want to talk about real quick, um, th- going back to something you said there, that uh, you have never been way into bear hunting. And it's it's kind of a new, I don't know if, if you called it a passion, a new passion or, or whatever. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm curious about that because uh, I'm the same, I, I have the same story with bears. I, I've not ever in my adult or you know in my life had some like a like a a big draw towards hunting bear it's just never been my and interestingly before i was into hunting bear i'd see them all the time when i was like elk hunting or or whatever see these bears all the time so since i started elk or uh, bear hunting i don't i don't see them nearly as often obviously but um it's it's one of those things that I, and I'm talking to other people out there that might be listening to this and they're like, man, I just don't really have any interest in going bear hunting. I, I started bear hunting, uh, like seriously two years ago, two seasons ago. Um, and this year has obviously been my best year for, for bears. I've got two of them. Um, and it is, 
it has inched its way up to like my top three hunts at this point. I, I love mm-hmm. I love September archery elk hunting. I, I love high mountain ruddy mule deer hunting. And I now added I, I added this black bear thing where I, I love black bear hunting. I love spring hunting and I love fall hunting. I, I just don't know what it is, but there's something about hunting these apex predators and, and going after these bears that are so elusive. Uh, it, it's just, it, it's like a huge passion for me now. And the meat's really good, by the way. Uh, yeah. what, what changed for you? Like what, where did that come from? Cause I don't even know where it came from for me. I just decided to do it one time and all of a sudden I was hooked. What about you? The only thing that I can think of honestly was, um, you know, obviously, you know, Scott Reekers, you know, works at Eastman's and Scott and I are both very passionate mule deer hunters. Mm-hmm. I mean, we love hunting about anything, but we're, uh, we're both diehard mule deer hunters. And we were up in the high country in Wyoming back in, I think it was 2020. Yeah, it was 2020. And, um, we had on this one ridge that we had, we had seen a lot of, uh, nice big bucks from there's this bear that would show up i mean he was you know thousand fifteen hundred yards away but he was always terrorizing the deer on this hillside and oh, deer really? would take off right oh yeah he was just like a like the bully of the mountain you like know? chasing and, him off it, kind of thing yeah and, or even if sometimes he just it, it was kind of hard to figure out what he was doing but he'd spook huh. all the deer and they'd take off and then he had to wait hours for them to come back and everything it was kind of frustrating but then anyway we relocated camp over to the other side of this ravine which is a major event up in the country we're hunting and uh because we finally found a, a buck that uh that scott really wanted to shoot and the only way to get a shot off was to move our camp and everything closer so we do that and and we have llamas in the back country on this particular trip and you know help haul all that our backpacking stuff and in hopefully an animal on the way out and um my son hunter is actually on this hunt too videoing he was uh, so he would have been 15 at the time and uh, he and Scott were on this ridge kind of babysitting where this buck might come out and right behind where we were sitting on this ridge it looked like um, what's that movie uh, with all the lions over in Africa with Val Kilmer the ghost in um, the darkness ghost in the darkness yes, it sir. looked like right behind this ridge that we were sitting on um, it looked and smelled like just this it, I don't know, like a lair almost. I mean, there was uh, yeah. animal parts everywhere. Everything yep. was torn up. There was beds everywhere. There was feces everywhere. It stunk like bear. And we didn't realize it at first. We're like, holy crap, this is like we're right in where this bear lives. And uh, anyway, one day we needed to uh, filter a bunch more water. And you can imagine with three guys and being in there for days, there's a lot of water that we have to deal with. So I, I told mm-hmm. Scott and Hunter, I said, why don't you guys just go ahead and and uh, keep watching for the deer. I'll go filter today. It was during the heat of the day, middle of the day. Nothing was going on anyway. So I leave my my rifle with them on the uh-huh. ridge. I didn't want to carry with me. And I didn't. <clears throat> I wasn't packing a pistol on this hunt. And I had bear spray on me. And I took one of the llamas and a couple of our empty, uh, uh, bigger uh, water reservoirs and went to the nearest stream where we were using for a water source. And I tied a llama up to the tree and I go down into the creek and I'm, I'm, I'm pumping water forever. I mean, I was probably down in there an hour and a half. I was getting close to done and I was sort of in a daze, just pumping water, pumping water, pumping water. And I should have been paying more attention, but all of a sudden the llama lets out this 
god awful scream. It sounded like a woman screaming, and I it scared <laughs> me. And I looked up, and in the creek with me, not I mean less than a hundred yards away, was a giant boar, uh, black bear, that one that we'd seen terrorizing yeah. the mountainside. And I don't know if he saw me or not for sure, but um, he was downwind, so he had to smell me. And and then. I think he was coming to check out this llama, to be honest with you. Well, ironically, these llamas that we rent, they're usually, they're really good llamas, but uh, this particular one, the the guy that we rent them from, he, he said that, now this one might be a little skittish. Wasn't our first time using llamas. He was comfortable sending him with us. He said, he's just been chased by a black bear a couple weeks ago and uh, uh, an outfitter actually caught him uh, because he was running around and freaked out. Well, anyway, so here I am with this poor llama that's tied to this tree who had already been chased by a bear and this other bear comes in. Well, I'm, so I drop everything. Don't, didn't even think, uh, left my walkie talkie and everything down in the Creek. And, uh, luckily I still have my bear spray on me and I run up by the llama trying, I'm hoping he won't snap the lead rope because we'll never get him back. Yeah. And, uh, and so I'm trying to get him calmed down. And I thought, well, I saw, I watched the bear saunter off into the tree. So I thought, well, whatever the bear's gone, I just need to get this llama calmed down. And I look up and this bear had circled us and was coming in, walking with his head down in a fairly aggressive position. And I'm like, Holy crap. He's coming in. Like he, he knows I'm here now. He knows this llama's here now. And, And this bear was giant too. And, and for, for Wyoming standards anyway. And, uh, he's coming in, uh, and I'm thinking, uh, you know, I'm doing, Hey bear, Hey bear, waving my arms and trying to be calm and get the llama calmed down. And his bear keeps coming and keeps coming and keeps coming and keeps coming. And he gets, I don't know, 50 yards away from me maybe. And, uh, stood up on his hind legs. He's checking me out. Like you could see him analyzing, like, do I want to do this or yeah, not? Yeah. Can I take him and, or not? <laughs> yeah. And, uh, and I'm thinking in my mind, Holy crap, I'm actually going to test bear spray today. I mean, mm-hmm. this is, this is happening. And, uh, the bear went back on all fours and takes a few more steps towards us. He's not within bear spray range, but if I would have had a pistol and a license, I would have shot him. Yeah. And, uh, he slowly turns and just saunters off into the trees and then he was gone. And then I had a real rodeo on my hands with that llama, of course. That thing was freaking out. And I was able to uh, barely hold on to the llama once I got it untied uh, from the tree and grab my walkie-talkie, and I got Scott on there. And I said, you need to get over here. I got a rodeo going on. Oh, and, man. Uh, so him and my How? son came running over. Anyway, so I'm, I'm thinking, I don't know for sure, but ever since then, all I can think about is shooting a bear. Yeah. And then – because of our partnership with Cryptic that we just launched uh, April 1st of 22 here this year, um, they want to do a hunt together and, you know, spring bear hunting was right there and, and we were able to get some over the counter licenses and, and they have a friend who's got a, a, a beautiful ranch that he let us hunt on and um, went over there and, and shot one with my bow. And I'm like, ever since that first arrow hit that, <laughs> that first bear, bear, I was yeah. like, uh, I'm I'm crazy addicted. Like I can't even put it in words. I didn't think anything mm-hmm. in my life would even come close to ever rivaling mule deer hunting for me. And I'm telling you, black bear hunting is there. It I absolutely nice. love it. And part of it is I don't know if this is right or wrong, but like I told the people up in Canada, we could have shot a second bear, and we had rifles with. We saw a giant boar up there, 
um, the next night after I shot mine and they just assumed I would grab the rifle and go shoot this giant boar because he was pretty uh, patternable what he was doing in this on this field edge and uh, I'm like I said no sir I am addicted to the roar I, I yeah. love being close and I that roar some of them are not very vocal some are really vocal the one up in Canada was extremely vocal and the one um, in Idaho this spring just let out a little you know roar when you first shoot it and uh, even just that little bit of a noise I'm I, I can't get enough. I mean, I'm just, I I, it's crazy, especially when you're that close to them. It's such and, a foreign uh, thing. It, like we never hear that from a bear. You, you know what I mean? <laughs> and so it's like, it's such a foreign thing that it, it I, I know exactly what you're, it, the thrill of hearing it like that is, is just something else. It is. And it's uh, part of it is I never thought I'd ever think this, like you hear stories of Fred bear and people like that, that are just addicted to the bear hunting partially because of the danger of it all. Mm -hmm. And I thought that's crazy, man. I don't want to hunt anything that can hunt me. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> uh, man, I'm, I mean, in fact, that, that big boar that I was talking about in Canada that we went tried to get that next night, my son and I were 25 yards from him and I was at full draw and I didn't, I didn't lose an arrow because there was just enough, of the edge of this oat field that were in the way of his vitals. And it probably would have been a, an okay shot, but I just didn't feel comfortable taking the shot. And so I let my draw down and that bear didn't even, he never knew we were there and I could never wow. get another shot. And, uh, I'm, but just being that close and that was another giant bear. And my son even said afterwards, he's running the camera, like we just squatted down and then they they're feeding in these fields and they'll pop up like you can't see them can't see them all of a sudden boom they pop up like the whack-a-mole game and there's bear heads popping mm -hmm. up out of these fields yeah. and uh this giant bear was you know 25 yards away and we're hunkered down and he he you know he couldn't see us but he's looking in our direction it looked like he was standing up looking directly at us uh like he wasn't happy about us being there and and my, my son said, man, dad, he's like, when that thing stood up and looked at in our direction, I was like, <laughs> we just made an epic mistake squatting down like this. Oh, but, that's um, awesome. Excuse yeah. me. What's, uh, what, what's your Instagram handle, Brandon? Actually, I don't have one. I'm oh, kind of, uh, okay. I'm one of the weird ones that doesn't do much on social media. So. I, I think and it's not because I'm against it. Yeah, I'm not against it or anything. I just... I just don't have time for it okay. to be honest with you. Okay, no, that makes so. sense because I was I was just trying to pull it up to see if I could see that bear again. But um, you know what we didn't do because I I have it in my mind that you've been on the show before, but you haven't, and no. and so I need to we, we need to like formally introduce who you are, what you do, uh, and and just kind of tell everybody a little a little bit about you because you're an interesting guy in in a sense of where like your your the traje trajectory if I could pronounce that right. <laughs> of your career is kind of gone um and uh i i was you know we met uh the last i don't know a few months ago when i was down in wyoming um and i yeah let's just let's start with that i i want to talk about what you went to school for and then kind of how you ended up at eastman's and and go from there does that make sense yeah absolutely it's uh it's definitely been a, an interesting journey one that i couldn't have planned on but yet one i hoped for if that makes sense mm -hmm. um you know growing up we were in big into the outdoors and and then especially when i got into my early teen years when i can actually you know have a, a deer tag and and uh go out with my friends even apart from my dad to go pheasant hunting or whatever i was born and raised in north dakota and uh lived there until i was 33 until i until we moved here to uh to wyoming but um, 
I, I, I got the, the archery bug when I was 16 and was just over the top passionate about archery instantly. I mean, I, and I, I really enjoy rifle hunting as well. Um, mm-hmm. and I, you know, that's what I started doing and I don't plan to ever quit that, but, um, there's just something about, you know, being that close to an animal that doesn't know that you're there and just the purity of archery. And everything. I just, I am so passionate about it. And so I got, I got bit by the archery bug pretty heavily when I was younger. And then, um, my dad, so I grew up in North Dakota, but we, I'm, I was born in the Western third of the state and lived in that a lot of my childhood in that Badlands corridor that a lot of people are familiar with where Theodore Roosevelt had a, had a couple ranches and mm-hmm. it's a pretty historic place and in its gorgeous country. It's still where my heart is, you know, even though I love where I live now and I wouldn't necessarily want to move back, but um, the Badlands are just my favorite place on earth. And, um, but at that time, so uh, it was probably 1992 or three when I got the archery bug and um, there was no, or th- that I knew of at the time, there was no publication or there's no videos, you know, at that time you'd go to the, the, your local VHS store and rent hunting videos. Yep. And uh, now that wouldn't be politically correct, of course, to do that, but you could do it at that time. And, and I, we we're always looking for mule deer stuff and there was nothing around that was just mule deer. It was uh, mostly whitetail, which, you know, I like hunting whitetail too, but we're such mule deer fanatics. And, uh, you know, there's the occasional elk hunting video back then. Mm-hmm. No information on moose and bighorn sheep, pretty much. Um, it, was, it was just difficult to find that stuff. And I was in a video store after school one day, and I saw uh, some of the Eastman's old um, winter range mule deer videos. And I, lo- I just looked in disbelief at these the, the, the covers of these VHS tapes. And it was 100% mule deer out on the winter range. I'm like, you got to be kidding me. <laughs> and so I, and at the time, you know, I hadn't heard, I, this was when I just heard of the Eastman's. Because you think about it, Eastman's Hunting Journal was starting in 1987. And so by the time the early 90s came around, it was still a pretty young publication. Yeah. You know, it yeah. hadn't been around that long. And wasn't as widely distributed yet as what, you know, I, I probably wouldn't have even seen it. So anyway, I run across this video, or these couple videos, and uh, I take them home and watch them after school, and I am just completely blown away that there's a mule deer only video and there's somebody doing this. So I call my dad at work, and I'm like, "You're never gonna believe this!" And I was so excited. He's like, he, "He's like, you're kidding me!" So we watch them together, and then then we found out that they have more videos, and we get more videos, and you know, subscribe to the magazine. And and I remember saying to my dad, I, I watched a uh, guy uh, Eastman, who's now uh, I think he's 50 or 51. Uh, he was in college at the time on these videos with his grandfather, Gordon, and calling at deer and, and just doing all sorts of cool stuff. And I remember saying to my dad, man, I wonder if, if they ever hire people. And dad said, that's just a family little company. He's like, you need to find a real career. You can't. There's no, he's like, there's no, there's no future in that. What does he's he like, say this, now? <laughs> yeah. Well, we both laugh at that story, of course, but um, you know, at the time he was probably right because it was just, they didn't have a bunch of employees yeah. or anything. And it was, and uh, Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. Um, and so anyway, I, I knew I wanted to do something wildlife related and uh there's a guy that we knew in our town who worked for the North Dakota Game and Fish Department. And he gave me some pointers on how to get into, you know, what degree to get and all this. And he said, but I'm, he said, I'm not going to lie to you. It's, 
it's uh it's tough out there there's there's a lot of people that want wildlife jobs there's not a lot of jobs which is still the case today and yeah, he said, what, sure. what you should do, he said, you know, go and get a business degree or an accounting degree and you can maybe work for a wildlife agency or a wildlife company. And then on occasion, you still get to get out in the field. I'm like, well, I guess that's a pretty good compromise. So I got a two year degree in account or in business, uh, business. Uh, wow. I'm drawing a blank on business management. Like, no, my two year degree was in accounting and finance. I guess they didn't call it that, but it, it's, that's what I was focusing on. And then I was and then I transferred to university to continue my accounting and finance double major that I was working towards. And a semester into the university, I'm just like I'm in a class like cost accounting and all these other stuff. I'm like, oh shoot me now! I can't do this anymore. <laughs> yeah, no and way. my dad, in full disclosure, my dad's an accountant, and so and he told me he said once you get to that level, you're going to know whether or not you're an accountant or not. And uh, hmm. and I knew I could not do this for the rest of my life. And and uh, so I went and switched my major to wildlife from fisheries biology. Even if it was going to be hard to get a job, I thought I, I just, at least this is something I can really get my teeth into and, and, and focus on and be excited about. And, and, uh, and it's true. It was very hard to get in, into that line of work. I, you know, you got to do a bunch of seasonal uh, jobs. I worked for the North Dakota game and fish department in a couple of places as a seasonal as a, with a forest service. I mean, I was taking any wildlife job I could. I worked at Cabela's in college. Was that like, was that like an internship or something or, or did they pay? You? Yeah, kind of. They, they call it a seasonal position now. So in college I was a summer seasonal. So I, I worked, you know, I would uh, do trail maintenance for the forest service or I um, sprayed weeds and planted food plots and fix fence and whatever else for the game and fish department. Um, oh man, we just, you're just kind of a jack of all trades. You're sort of a utility infielder and, you're actually doing a lot of the fun work that people go to school for uh, that you think you're going to be out in the field your whole career. But by the time you actually get a decent paying job in that line of work, you're still driving a desk. I mean, oh, you, you don't get out in the field much and you're stuck. It's just the way it is. And it's, you know, and I did that for a while too. I, I got on full time with a game of fish and worked as a wildlife technician and a private lands biologist. And, uh, and then after that, I had a job opportunity. I'd been volunteering for the Mule Deer Foundation for many years. And then they had a, position open up in in that region and i took it and so in, i was a regional in, director in the dakotas did, did you say uh, i covered dakota? north north dakota south dakota eastern montana and northern wyoming and so i had a heck of a territory um i spent a lot of time driving to my suburban and setting up chapters and working with chapters to to do projects with agencies and private landowners and and then uh when i wasn't doing the chapter stuff i was the only biologist on staff at the time uh, they they have more than this now, but um, so Miles Moretti, the former CEO, the one who hired me, uh, he and I would go to all the international wildlife meetings on behalf of the of Mule Deer Foundation, mm -hmm. and so we would go to the Western Association of Fish and Wildlife Agencies, Wildlife Management Institute, um, and several others. I was part of the Mule Deer Working Group. Um, I sat on energy councils uh, to help do mitigation projects when it comes to energy development of wildlife and. Uh, it was very interesting, and I, you know, they trusted me a lot for a guy that I was just in my upper twenties at the time, and uh, they really gave me a lot of rope, you know. To <laughs> I say yeah. to hang myself from, but <laughs> um, just enough. But anyway, yeah, and then, uh, in, you know, with all the travel with MDF, it, uh, we, my wife and I were having kids at the time too, and popping out babies, and and it was just I, I was just gone so much, and it was so hard to be gone that much. And my wife was a nurse working night shifts and we were ships passing in the night. And so 
I decided to resign from there. And uh, in, in the meantime, um, just on the weekends and stuff, um, I, I had built up my own agricultural fence business, fencing business. So I built um, barbed wire and electric fences for ranchers. And uh, that had gone, huh. gotten so busy that I needed to decide, you know, what I was going to do for a living, either that or the wildlife stuff. And so I, uh, I quit the wildlife stuff and did that for just a short stint. And, and then a, a random conversation with Ike Eastman happened. Uh, where I wanted Eastman support on a fair chase measure in uh, in North Dakota that I was still volunteering a lot with wildlife related groups and uh, trying to, you know, protect fair chase hunting in North Dakota. And, and uh, he said, I heard that you quit Mule Deer Foundation. What are you doing now? And, and I was fencing, like I said, and then our little church that we went to, I, we were in between preachers and I was actually preaching full time also. So here I was a wildlife guy and then I was preaching and fencing and i was sitting in the preacher's office in a little church when i called him and he i told him what i was doing he said that's a weirder that's the weirdest thing i've ever heard of in my life i said i said i know it's not exactly where i saw myself 20 years ago but and, and so this, um, but this wasn't the first time you you like spoke with or met ike right you, you knew him before that through the mule deer mule deer Foundation yeah just or? a couple chance meetings um you know through chapter related stuff here in cody wyoming uh, which is, of course, near where the Eastman's office is. And, and th- there is an Eastman's employee um, who, who uh, actually had the job that I have now. He had that job at the time, and, and him and I have become friends. His name is Matt Souk. He's a good, really good guy, still in the industry. And uh, he, he's just – his resume is unbelievable, the things that he's done. And um, hmm. anyway, he, he had told uh, – he was on the Cody, Wyoming, uh, MDF chapter committee at the time. And so he had told Ike in passing that I had resigned and then, and then he had actually resigned. So he wanted to work in the nonprofit wildlife arena at the time. And he went to work for the wild sheep foundation. And then, uh, Ike said, well, you know, Matt resigned and, and, uh, man, I, I sure like to talk to you about the job and I about dropped the phone. So all these years later, you know, being in high school, thinking I want to work for the Eastman's, um, yeah, I couldn't have planned it the way it happened, but yeah, that's, that's kind of what interesting, happened. Interesting, so. man. Did, did you ever tell Ike, like prior to you getting hired at Eastman's that when you were, when you were a kid or a teenager or whatever, um, that you had had a discussion with your dad about how you'd want to work for him. And your dad kind of poo pooed the idea because you know, back, back then it's just not a realistic thing to think about back. Yeah. You know, early nineties. It's, I gotta, it's, it's, it's always fun for me talking to somebody that's, that's, you know, roughly my same age, and talking about the way we were raised and some of the things that happened, I actually rented. I got so excited when. Uh, do you remember the blockbuster video rental stores? The the block. They oh were everywhere. Yeah. They were everywhere. Oh yeah. For Definitely. you youngsters out there, we used to physically have to drive to a storefront and go in and find all these videos that were like either VHS and then they came out with a DVD, rent them and then return them after watching them. So anyway, uh-huh. right. I did that and rented and I found an I was super excited found an Eastman show and you know how the old VHS tapes that you could put the tape over the top of them to record over the top Yeah do you remember that somebody did that to the Eastman's one and and the, obviously the video rental store didn't know this but somebody <laughs> did that and it started playing like the Eastman's little intro they had back in the day uh and then it switched and all of a sudden I was watching the intro to Ghostbusters 
and somebody re- <laughs> somebody recorded Ghostbusters over the top of the Eastman stuff, and I was pissed. And, you know, I'm like I'm like 14. I was like 14 or something. But anyway, that was that's long... hilarious. So uh, let's get back to what you were talking about there. So you had a you had a conversation with Ike, and yep. he's like he's like I want to talk to you about a position. Um, where to go from there? Well, and then and the, well, the ironic thing too with all this is that backing up to when I was originally going to go into accounting and finance and hopefully get a job working on the business side of a wildlife related company. I was thinking more of an agency or something like that, like a, a yeah. state or federal agency. And um, my, my, I, I started off strictly handling our magazine advertising for both Eastman's hunting journal, Eastman's bow hunting journal and building relationships and, and uh, you know, um, prospecting calling people to advertise plus getting their gear into test and and uh you know and which eventually leads into you know more sponsors and in uh, different partners and this and that in the industry it's just a it's a constant evolution really i mean consistency is key and we and we shoot hard for that but um you know there's just always change always something happening and and over time because i've been there a long time now um next to guy and ike i've been there the longest out of anybody and um, I'm now the, I guess, we don't really get hung up on titles too much, but I've, I, I'm going to trust Ike on this because he's the boss. And I've heard him call me the VP of sales and marketing. That sounds pretty, pretty important. Man, but that uh, is based, official. Do you have business cards that say that? Uh, I don't, I don't think they say that. I just, we, I in fact, we, when we do, uh, when we do business cards, we intentionally leave things just with our contact information because we don't we don't get too hung up on titles because we all wear a lot of different hats. I mean, one day I'm, I mean, most of my day is, is on the phone, on email, texting, whatever social media at work, uh, even though I don't do it personally. Um, and, and just reaching out to people and building relationships and, and, uh, and making the relationships we have uh, with our partners stronger. And I love it. I, I just absolutely love that part. But then, then there'll be that say that's on a Monday, then on Tuesday, I might be writing three articles for the magazine and then on Wednesday, I might be going out shooting a video tip. And I mean, it's just, it's a, and then hunt season, of course, every, all of our hunts are filmed. Yeah. And it, it's just, uh, there's never a dull moment. And then, of course, because of, um, we're a small company still, and, you know, there's 14 of us there. And, and um, there's just a lot of meetings and a lot, you know, Eastman's moves at, at lightning speed. And, and, w- and we have to because, you know, the, our, the media world is just ever changing. And uh, I mean, you know, when I started 12 years ago, I never thought in a million years that we would have as many, well, a podcast, let alone as many podcasts as we have now. So um, podcasts and webisode series and yeah. social media and e-newsletters. I mean, just the list goes on and on. And uh, so there's never really much time to catch our breath, which I like because I don't do well with boredom or with monotony. And so um, I need, I need it to stay fresh and, and just keep going. What what are all the podcasts you've got? You've got Brian Barney's show, you've got uh, yep. the Wingman, yep. um, with well, with Todd. Yeah, we've got. Uh, so we got, you know, obviously we're partnering with you on the Western Huntsman. We've got Eastman's Elevated, which is what Brian Barney does. We've got the Wingman uh, uh, podcast. Brian and and us had also started another podcast a couple of years ago called uh, Flycast by Eastman's, which is fly fishing podcast. And then is, uh, that, and is that still going? It's still going. It's not, you know, the fly fishing world is, is, uh, it's not as big as what you think as a consumer. 
No, and it's it's, it's definitely it's there's not like it's never going to be a giant thing like like Eastman's Elevated is or you know anything yeah. like that. But and then we also have Eastman's Predator Pros, which is a predator hunting oh, yeah, podcast. Oh yeah, the Predator Pros one. I forgot about and, that one. And then, uh, you know, I can't say too much right now, but we're working on a couple others, too. So, um, Well, you kind of spilled the, the beans that I haven't actually spilled on my show yet. Man, I like mule deer hunting. It's almost time, too. I look forward to mule deer hunting every single year. It's what I grew up on. That is not to say that I'm great at it. But now there's some really good resources available. And my favorite one is over at Eastman's Hunting Journals where they have the Mule Deer course. This course has all sorts of digital information for you to go through as an e-course. It's got the basic safety, training and preparation, choosing a hunt, making a hunt plan, gear, scouting, glassing, field judging, rifle hunting, bow hunting, hunt strategy, harvest, the experience. All of it is right there in one spot for you to access and learn from some of the best like Dan Picard and Brian Barney. So up your mule deer hunting game by going to taghub.eastmans.com forward slash courses forward slash online mule deer course. You know what? Just look up Eastman's hunting journals and you'll find it. It's super easy. Let them know I sent you. You won't regret it. Um, it just for, for those of you listening, uh, th- what he said there, yes, uh, we, we, meaning I here at the Western Huntsman and, and my golden retriever, um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, we, we have decided to partner with Eastman's hunting journals and we're, we're going to do, you know, more of like a formal announcement down the road or whatever, but, um, I, I do just want to touch on that real quick that uh, I didn't want to br- just kind of blow over that because you, you'd mentioned it. I uh, haven't haven't made a big stink about it yet, but um, I, I want I do want the audience to know that I am uh, like beside myself excited because like you, Brandon, um, you know, I grew up on Eastman Sonic Journals. I, I had I had I was a subscriber to the it was probably the first magazine that I personally ever subscribed to as a kid. And I paid it by uh, I, I paid for the subscription myself by mowing lawns, um, and in in this is it's something that um, we've been working on a long time, and and I uh, got to come down and meet with you guys this this last summer, and uh, things have worked uh, in in a way that uh, looks this partnership's a go, man. Um, so it's it's been it's been good. Yeah, it's exciting, and there's a there's a really big bright future like we that we've all talked about with just you know really blowing up the western huntsman and and uh just even taking it to the next level we're excited we're super excited to be working with you and and i know you and scott talk uh more often than anybody probably yeah. in our office but, i really um, like scott man he's such a cool dude I, yeah and everybody at eastman's is it's 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 just an interesting thing um brandon like i i, I don't know it's uh, again, it's I, I've known who who grew up out west and doesn't know Eastman's hunting journals. You know what I mean? Oh man, and, I know, and it's like, and it's really dumbfounding too to you know because of like you said, you and I have been around long enough to know what it was like before them. Yeah, uh, not I mean not before the Eastman family necessarily, but before maybe Eastman's hunting journal started. Sure, because Gordon Eastman started filming in the in the fifties, which is before my time, mm-hmm. and. uh so they've been doing it a very long time, but um, 
you know, the, the, the media landscape has just grown so much and it, and it's exciting. It's cool to be a part of. And, and a lot of what's out there now is because of what the Eastman family started decades ago. I mean, there were, there was no such thing as, yeah. Yeah. I mean, Mike Eastman wanted to, you know, write for some of the bigger national magazines and, you know, he didn't have a journalism degree. He wasn't, uh, he wasn't a Jack O'Connor and, and some of these other guys that uh, he, and, and, but yet people were starving for this Western information that he had in his head and he wanted to share with people. And, and he would go to sports shows and people are just like, well, I'm coming out West and I've got, you know, I'm hunting elk. And, and he said, it was very clear that they were hungry for the information and they were intimidated because they don't live out here. And, and even the ones that did live out here, they wanted more tactics on how to be successful and mm-hmm. gear reviews and all that stuff that we do. And, um, it's just funny to hear them talk about how that started. He came home from one of the shows and, and he told his wife, I'm going to start a magazine. And she's like, what? <laughs> I know. <laughs> <laughs> and it's just a cool story. Did you, and, did, and, you, did you say that right? Or did you, yeah, uh, you, you misspoke. You said, I am going to take the trash out wrong. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, uh, so that, you know, all these years later, it's evolved into, um, what it is now. And like you said, there's a whole, now more than one generation, there's two or three generations of hunters that don't even really know what it's like without Eastman's being a presence there. Yeah. And, and, and there's times where, you know, we get busy in our day to day and like any, like any job and uh, you know, you get caught up on deadlines and, and moving at the speed of light and your next travel and whatever else. And sometimes you forget just how important that is and how much it means to people and how much it, it meant to me before I worked there and still means to me, you know, I mean, yeah. I, I've said it often to a lot of my coworkers that I'm, I'm a firm believer that, that the hunting industry needs an Eastman's publishing in, in the fold is it's just one of those, you know, we don't really fit the, uh, the mold of, of what everybody wants all the time, but we're just so consistent all the time. That's the Eastman family. That's the way they are. And, and uh, even though we got a lot of good, creative, uh, hardworking em- employees um, that just knock it out of the park every day, um, the Eastmans are the driving force. I mean, they are such visionaries. And without that, man, it wouldn't be what it is yeah. you know, today. No, for sure, man. I couldn't, I couldn't agree with that more. I, uh, I, I just was super impressed when, when I came down there from, from Ike to you to, to Scott uh, to, to all the, the, the team down there, uh, Dan and Todd and gosh, we had, uh, Luke. So again, for those of you that, that follow me on Instagram, you noticed some of my posts got a lot better than what I'm, I know how to do. That's because it's not me. It's, it's, uh, it's Luke. I, I still post on there, but he does these ones and I don't know how he does it, man. Well, he'll, he'll post something on there. And it'll get like 10 times the amount of interactions than I'll ever get when I post. Because I'm just a hillbilly, man. I'll I'll post something and, yeah, cool, whatever. <laughs> Not him. Yeah, he's it goes nuts. Yeah, he's good at it. Yeah, it yeah, goes he's viral. Really, and it just shows that when you're, you know, when you really love doing something. You know, some people, you know, some of us in the industry, we do, you do social media because it's expected, you know, or it's yeah. just part of the job or whatever. Well, Luke's, you know, he speaks that language. He's at the, he's in the right age group and. And he, he geeks out on it. I mean, he just loves it. He, he knows yeah. how to talk to people. So you, you 
you basically picked up and moved from North Dakota to Powell, Wyoming for Eastman's. Is that right? Correct. Yep. And so I'm curious as to what that was like, uh, you know, from like a personal standpoint, um, Wyoming is always, I asked this for a reason. Wyoming has always been a draw to me. Uh, I, I love the people in Wyoming. Um, I grew up going to Wyoming. Um, and it's just, it's one of the like iconic Western States. Um, now just so Ike, if in case Ike listens to this, Wyoming's <laughs> not as great as Idaho. But Wyoming would be a, a, a very, very close second. And so um, hopefully hopefully he learns something from this. But uh, yeah. no, totally kidding. But uh, Wyoming Wyoming has always been a draw for me. I, I, I don't know what it is about the, the just the state, the, the culture, the, the people, uh, the history in Wyoming. I love Wyoming. For you, what was that like? Were you was was Wyoming a draw for you prior to you moving there, or was it like just an afterthought of okay, this is this is where my job is, and so we're going to move there? Does that make sense? Yeah, it makes. Oh, total I should. Um, I need to quit asking that. I got I got balled out by my buddy Guy over at uh, Western Contours for he says you got to quit asking if that question makes sense. So, Guy, <laughs> I apologize. Uh, well, and, and it does though, it, it, you know, uprooting your life, especially when you have a wife and kids and a career already established to another state on a, gee, I hope this job works out. Uh, you know, hindsight, I should probably go back in time and slap myself because we didn't have any major good reason to move. But, um, I did, my wife and I were working really hard to try to find a way she really wanted to be a stay at home mom. And unfortunately she married a poor wildlife biologist and uh, <laughs> she's a nurse and was making two to three times what I was making. And so I was, that's why, I, you know, the fencing business started and just trying to, trying to make all that work personally. But anyway, um, I, my friends and I, when I was in, I was 18 or 19, a couple of my friends went on a big road trip. Um, and it was kind of like our graduation, you know, Hey, let's just put on the miles in our old, my old blazer and just hit the road. And uh, we put on like 3,000 miles in a week and, and saw the sights from, uh, you know, going straight down through down to Colorado and Denver and hung out there and came up around um, into a corner of Utah on the west side of Wyoming and hit Jackson and all that fun stuff there. Hit Cody and we came through the, the Cody Powell area, the, you know, the Bighorn Basin where we live and, and all of us were diehard born and raised North Dakota boys. We're never leaving the state. Love it here. Love how, you know, rural it is and the hunting and fishing and everything. And then, mm-hmm. um, that we're never going to leave. And then when we came through this area, we all three looked at each other and went, man, I don't really want to move, but if I ever had to move, I could live here. This why? Is cool. Why did, why did you have that? It feeling? just, I just, it just had a vibe to it or something. I don't know. It, 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 uh, part of it is too. I'm, I'm from, extreme corner southwest north dakota that's where you know my parents are from that's where they went to high school that's where i was born uh, i still hunt around that area a lot um, still have a lot of family back there uh, my grandparents are still alive there and uh, aunts and uncles and cousins and all sorts of stuff and in southwestern north dakota really re- reminds me a lot of the bighorn basin obviously there's you know the bighorn basin we're surrounded by mountain ranges yeah which north dakota doesn't have but as far as in the basin itself the real arid dry badlands kind of 
rough looking country. That's, that's what I love. And, and uh, it just, I don't know, kind of felt like an extension of that, which I guess geographically it is. And yeah, I just, it, when I, when I found out number one, that I could potentially be working for a company like Eastman's, which I'd idolized for so long. And then that it was here, I'm thinking, what are the odds of that? That that's the one spot on this planet that I said I would, I would move to if I ever moved out of North Dakota. And uh, it has been, honestly, I feel like I've been born and raised here. It just feels like home. It felt like home the first week we moved here. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah, that's, and that's, there's been, there's been a few times my wife and I have traveled to Montana, or not Montana, uh, Dando, Wyoming, uh, in consideration of, of moving there um for for a couple of different reasons at one point there was a company for sale down there that uh in pinedale wyoming that it uh, i was interested in buying um and i'm glad i didn't because man they get some crazy winners in pinedale yeah but, they do um th- this was when i was like absolutely you, you mentioned you did the uh the fly fishing podcast and i asked about it because i there was a there was this time in my life where i was absolutely bananas about not uh fly fishing and so I'd go, we'd drive, this was when I was, uh, we were, we were living down in Utah at the time. Uh, I'd drive up to Pinedale to fish and, and well, all over Wyoming to fish. Cause it's like Utah kind of, it, it sucks for fly fishing. There's, there's a few good rivers, but everybody knows those rivers. So it's always crowded. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. so I would, I would make the drive and I'd drive up to Wyoming and, and, uh, we, we traveled all over Wyoming and considered it, but. Uh, finally came back back here to Idaho and was like, okay, this is this is where we belong. But yeah, you know, and, and you know, every place isn't for everybody. I mean, it's, there's it's not. Yeah. There's people. There's people that I that I. I mean, I know a lot of people that would definitely not want to live where we live because um, there there are not a lot of conveniences uh, from this. I mean, we have, you know, <laughs> it's not like we don't have you know running water and bathrooms or anything like that. You don't but, even I mean, have the internet we, down there. Yeah, <laughs> but we did. But you know, it's like the side. You know, pretty much roll up the sidewalks and pile at six o'clock. And if you mm-hmm. say if your bathroom sink is leaking at nine thirty at night, or or say ah, maybe a little earlier, seven thirty at night, and you just need to run into you know Ace Hardware or Home Depot or whatever to get a part, well, tough luck. First of all, we don't have Home Depot. Second of all, the hardware stores close at six. Yeah, and so you you know you, you just you got to wait. And in the closest town that has a lot of that stuff is Billings, which is 90 miles away from us. So you're not going to just run there on a whim real quick in the evening. And um, so, yeah, we're fairly isolated, which that's part of the reason why I like it here is it's not for everybody. And and I'm glad it's not for everybody because I don't want everybody living here. No, I totally, that's, that's how we are in our neck of the woods, man, (laughs) in our town. It's they, like you said, they roll up the streets and um, shut her down for the night. And, but I don't, I don't want people to know because we, and we laugh about my wife and I laugh about this and stuff because people will tell us, well, why don't you do, uh, what is that? And I always forget the name of it. The, the food delivery thing where people drive you the food, grub, grub hub, Uber, oh, yeah. something like yep. that. Anyway, you can get, when we go to like a big city, you can, you can get an app and they'll, uh, actually bring you food and, and it's pretty quick and it's pretty cool. We don't have that kind of stuff here. And, no. <laughs> and that's that's okay with me and and it's okay with my wife but I, I tell you what um a few more trips to like Powell and Cody driving in in midnight like we did last time and seeing those giant mule deer bucks on the side of the road uh just hanging out like the the way they were 
Uh, man, you guys have some big muleys down there. Um, I yeah, don't, you I don't want to promote that, but you do. <laughs> you do. The deer population in Wyoming overall, quite frankly, is disappointing, but um, but there are still pockets where it's good. And, and uh, you know, I, I moved here with the illusion of shooting a big old mule deer every single year with my rifle, and um, I haven't shot one in 12 years. And it's not because I don't see mule deer. Part of it is I grew up, you know, I'm part of the heyday of mule deer hunting, and I've, I've seen some, seen and have harvested and have pursued some truly magnificent animals um, where I grew up. But um, even up there, it's not, you know, it's not, the deer hunting just isn't what it used to be. And it's, it's sad. It makes me, it makes me sad because I don't, you know, know if my kids or grandkids are going to get to experience that same thing that I did. Um, but, you know, the good thing is there are conservation measures that people are trying to take and um, agencies and nonprofits and all that working together. And I think that some of the, the, the silver lining to that cloud, I guess, is that there seems to be a lot more collaboration um, than there used to be, which is a good thing. Um, too many times you'd have, you know, this wildlife agency and that nonprofit and this other agency that they're all trying to do their own little thing. Nobody's talking, nobody's communicating and, and they're not pooling funds together because wildlife management is expensive and to do it right, especially when you get into Western lands with trying to manage sagebrush and cheatgrass and aspens. And I mean, it's just, it's a very complicated uh, you know, ecology out here and, and it's, and because of the lack of moisture and everything, it's not something that you can just do quickly and yeah. easily. You, you got to be in it for the long haul. And I think the the good thing is that there, you know, there's some positive results that are happening from finally some, you know, studies that were done and collaborative projects like the migration initiative and others that, um, you know, finally there's some headway being made, but it's just going to take time. I mean, well, what, it, what's happened, Brandon? What, what is, what is the cause of, uh, the, the deer population going down in, is it a, are you saying it's like a Wyoming thing or is it, uh, you know, what, what is it? It's across much of their range. Um, and it's when I, I work yeah. for the, I mean, when I work for MD. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Uh, when I worked for MDF and I would speak at banquets, um, people would always ask me, what's the number one thing that's driving mule deer numbers down? And I said, if there was one thing, we wouldn't be having this discussion. The problem is there's half a dozen things and they're all working at the same time. And so it's kind of the perfect storm. And, um, you know, there's, it's not just this one thing in every part of the mule deer range, but if you figure across a range in certain areas, you have all at the same time, you might have a few drought years mm-hmm. and then, then they get hammered by a tough winter. And maybe that's during uh, an oil and gas boom. And I'm not anti oil and gas development at all. Uh, my dad used to work in the oil field when I was a kid and I drive three different gas guzzling suburban. So I understand we need the resource, but you know, the booms definitely have an impact on the land. And uh, so, that, you know, luckily the, in the energy companies have a seat at the table now too in some of these mitigation projects. And so they're trying to do things smarter and, and more wildlife friendly. And, um, and then, the, then you have predator issues mm-hmm. and then you have subdivisions. And, and like our former governor Friedenthal, when I was at an energy conference back in the mid 2000s, 
he said, you know, uh, the energy industry, yes, should should have a seat at the table and 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 does have an impact on the land. But it, like he mentioned, he said, you know, it has a permanent impact on the on the on the land because energy uh, development, especially oil and gas, is there's a reclamation part of those contracts, right? And there those aren't those wells aren't producing forever. They will stop producing or not produce as much as what you know. It's not worth having them out there anymore, and they will have to be reclaimed. And I've seen in the area where I grew up, where there used to be wells most of my life, and boom, they're gone, and they, re, you know, they 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 recovered it or they restored it. Um, so those those can be reclaimed, and they are reclaimed. Um, but subdivisions, guess what? When there's houses up, they're not going away. Yeah. Totally. And, and and that and and that's uh, drastically affecting migration corridors in the winter range, and um, a lot of times where people want to be in the winter time or on the landscape where it's beautiful and and, and scenic, that's where the animals want to be, and it's not because it's beautiful and scenic, it's because it's got the resources that they need. Yeah. And uh, so and then you got you know there's more and more roads, uh, highways and in, in, in developed county roads and everything out west and there ever used to be and so you know mortality along the highways is a, is a factor mm-hmm. and so there's overpasses and underpasses that have been done to great success in certain areas like around pinedale where you were talking about and, and many other places too and uh, uh competition with elk elk numbers largely are booming around the country and i'm not again not anti-elk i love elk hunting but whenever you have areas that have really large numbers of elk you will not have really large numbers of mule deer. What well, is there? Is there like a, a biological reason behind that, Brandon? Like what? Why? Because I so I grew up in Utah, where they don't have whitetail in Utah. Or well, they might now. I, but they didn't when I was a kid. It was it was mm-hmm. all elk and mule deer, and they would be together. Not you know together together, but there would be a herd of elk over here on on one side of the draw. And you look over and there's like three mule deer bucks and you look down a little bit lower and there's some, you know, some muley does and and what have you. And so what is it about elk and mule deer? Is that, is it like a bad combination uh, in terms of they're territorial and they kind of kick each other out or or what happens there? Well, I think there's a lot of things that happen there. Number one, elk are a, a larger herd animal, you know, generally speaking. And they, you know, they, they, they tend to exist in larger numbers and, and they are very adaptable uh, to not only weather, but also habitat changes. And you want to talk about uh, a species that can move through an area and, and mow down a lot of vegetation, um, man, elk can do it. Mm-hmm. And again, it's not that elk and mule deer don't coexist at all together. It's just wherever you see large numbers of one, you're not going to see large numbers of the other. And uh, some of that is just habitat based. Sometimes there's areas where there's a lot of mule deer and it's just not the best elk habitat. There's not as much grazing type habitat. It's more um, browsing habitat. But however, elk are browsers and grazers. And so they're going to eat a lot of those same groceries too. And think of it this way. If you've ever ice fished before, and, and you're catching perch through a lake uh, or through a hole in the ice in, in a lake and you're hammering the perch, hammering the perch, hammering the perch. All of a sudden, nothing. They just disappeared. Like, where did they go? And I don't know, five, ten minutes later, you look down through the hole and you can see the front end of a giant northern 
mm. a Northern Pike. And they moved in. And that means the other fish better leave. And and some of that is a little different dynamic, obviously, than big game. But it, I use that analogy a lot because it's like the pike or sort of the elk in the perch of the mule deer. Mm-hmm. And they're just not going to be around each other for different re- different reasons of what the fish, you know, obviously from predator-prey standpoint and all that other stuff. But sure. uh, what I'm talking specifically, you look at a really big ungulate like a mule deer, I mean like a, an elk and in a average size ungulate like a mule deer and the mule deer will not outcompete those elk and elk can tolerate deeper snow before they have mm-hmm. to be pushed out of an area. And, and likewise mule deer in whitetail competition. Now, again, you think it'd be the same way elk to mule deer, mule deer to whitetail, right? Mule deer, are the big brothers. So they're going to push the whitetail out. Well, what happens is there's a, a, a during the rut, Mule deer, generally speaking, and, and most of us hunters don't ever get to see this, but researchers and hunters that have spent an, just an exorbitant amount of time out of field have noticed this. Mule deer bucks, generally speaking, are more of a Romeo. They're going to they're gonna spend more time with the females. They're not a wham, bam, thank you, ma'am type of a critter like a whitetail buck is. Mm-hmm. Whitetail are very aggressive. And it's not that a whitetail buck is going to beat the tar out of a big mule deer buck during the rut. But what they will do is they will breed those mule deer does much quicker because the than than a than a mule deer buck will because a mule deer doe is also expecting to be romanced a little bit more. Hmm. And whereas that white tail buck comes in and boom, breeds her and he's off to the next one. Well, guess what? She's been bred. And so she's not gonna allow another buck to, to breed her. And that copulation is is either gonna be unsuccessful. Or it's going to relate. There's a bunch of different theories. Some are proven, some are not. Um, but it, it may produce an offspring in which they, I mean, obviously there's crossbreeding that happens. But the percentage chance of them having a successful fawn is not high. And when they do have it, they could be sterile. Um, they could exhibit some of the worst characteristics from both species. Yeah. Uh, there's a study that was done that I read in college Um of the crossbreeding between mule deer and whitetail. And what'll happen is sometimes there'll be uh, a fawn crop um, that will have what they call a dihybrid gait, meaning that, you know, how mule deer stop and bound off very quickly and whitetail mm-hmm. kind of run more like a dog, right? They're, and they get it, you know, they're just motoring across the prairie yep. um, or across the hillsides. Well, some of these hybrids will exhibit characteristics of both of those but not the best ones of both of those. Yeah, that is so, uh, that's Dr. Valeria's Geist study, I believe, up in British Columbia. Uh, where... Yeah, I, I read a bunch of Dr. Geist yeah. studies, and yeah. and uh, in fact, he's the one that I first heard talking about, you know, a Rome or a mule deer buck being more of a Romeo. In fact, sometimes what they'll do to kind of <laughs> what we humans would say, get the female in the mood, try to almost trick that. Um, doe's body to go into estrus is a mule deer buck will make a very nasally noisy sound that sounds like a fawn hmm. and in in sometimes that will make the doe receptive to him yeah yeah and, and so sense. there's a lot more of a of kind of a relationship type thing and it's not that they're uh you know they're, they're still obviously polygamous and everything but they, they don't <laughs> 
<laughs> they they don't have one breeding. It's not like a breeding pair that mates for life, like in some bird species. And yeah. Everything. But yeah. Um, yeah, it's very interesting. So it the dynamic coming back to why mule deer numbers are decreasing, you can see that it's not just one thing. And so mm-hmm. you've got competition with other ungulates. You've got predators. You've got human encroachment, whether that's from energy development or subdivisions. You've got weather conditions that maybe aren't favorable in a certain decade. And it just seems to all be working at the same time. And, and it's just, uh, as a mule deer fanatic, it's, it's sad for, it's sad to see. So like, I guess as, as a consensus, it's safe to say when you're talking about factors that impact the growth of populations or, or maybe the, the, the other direction where populations are going down, those factors add up a little bit heavier on mule deer than they do maybe a whitetail or, or with elk. Um, cause I, I think that that's how I feel about it. Um, and, and this is why I asked you, cause you, you've actually got the, 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 the biologist background on this. Um, is that, is that a fair statement that the, the factors adding up to a lack of growth in population is, is heavier on, on muleys and there's more factors than a whitetail population or an elk population? Well, yeah, it mostly because it's kind of a yes and no answer, but most of, mostly because mule deer are just for the for the forces that are working on them right now, they are definitely not very adaptable to those. And whitetail and elk are extremely adaptable animals, and mm-hmm. and I wish that mule deer were that way, but they just aren't. Now that doesn't mean they don't adapt at all, uh, but they're they're just not as they're kind of like me. They don't like change. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, a, a little slow to uh, to accept it, I guess you could say. And hopefully, though, with, you know, the way wildlife managers are, are taking a hard look at a lot of this, and they have been for a long time, um, that, you know, maybe our grandkids will have a different outlook on what the species, you know, what direction it's going. Man, I hope so. I, because you know, between between talking to you about it, I and uh, we we mentioned uh, Dr. Geist. I had Dr. Geist on the show before he passed away. Oh wow! Uh, and we had we had a great discussion about um, everything that we're talking about. We had a, a big long wolf discussion. Uh, he's such a he was such a passionate guy, uh, and and he described exactly what you just mentioned, where that you know the hybridization between the whitetail and the mule deer. Uh, what what happens when because we never really clarified or finished that point um but but what you were getting at is the way that whitetail run and if anybody's ever hunted mule deer and you bumped a mule deer and the way they stalked that hop thing almost looks like a giant jackrabbit uh, hopping over everything and they could they could hop hop over log jams and stot over hills uh straight up and down and and they're very accustomed and uh I, I guess bred for that, and so they're 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 effective at predator getting away from predators. Well, when you get the hybridization, though, the, the the there's a confusion within that animal where it doesn't know if it's stotting or if it's running, and so right. it just can't get away from predators, and it and it can't compete with other ungulate species as well because of this. And anyway, that's a we we've been going down that uh, for a bit there, and and I know we're over an hour here. I want I don't want to keep you too long, but I I do want to talk about your pronghorn hunt you're about to go on because there's some uh, things you know that the nature of the hunt that you're going on. I think people should know about. Do you want to talk about that? Yeah, again, it's been kind of a 
a different fall from some of these opportunities that have come up, like, you know, the bear hunt we talked about in, in mm-hmm. Alberta. And then, um, and then going into antelope season here, um, the, the, the tag that I drew is a very, there's a lot of public land there, but there's a lot, it's all intermingled with private land and it's not, a lot of the public land is not easy to get to, or it's impossible to get through without going through uh, private land. And a lot of times you just can't go through the private land. That's just the way it is. And I I've drawn this tag um, 10 years ago and I beat my head against the wall for weeks, scouting it, hunting it, then rifle hunting it. And I finally kind of understood some of the access. And then in the same area, my son has drawn a couple uh, mule deer permits um, that allowed us to learn it more. And uh, we've been, uh, this this hunt is going to be used to tell the story of what passed in Congress um, this past year called the Mapland Act. And what that is, is it is allocating federal funds and personnel to make it a focus to finish digitizing um, access easements from paper records that are in uh, federal offices of the of the BLM, the Bureau of Land Management, and the United States Forest Service. And it's not that these agencies haven't been working on a lot of this over time. It's just it hasn't needed to be a priority, and they're short-staffed. You know, they don't have the budgets that they necessarily well, you, do the you, job. Hold, Brandon, you, you cut out there just a little bit. I don't know if that was my phone, but uh, can you say that one more time? Uh, what part did I cut out on? Just, uh, just right the the last 10 seconds there. Okay. So it's not that these agencies haven't uh, been digitizing, meaning getting them into GIS systems, which can then be utilized by the agencies, uh, by sportsmen or any, any member of the public that wants to access them. And then also companies like, uh, say, an Onyx Maps or whatever uh, might upload that data into their system so that the rest of us can know where these access easements are across private land to get to federal land. And so a lot of times you'll be, uh, you know, either driving down a road or hiking or whatever, and you get to a private land boundary and you're, man, if I could just get across this one little quarter mile stretch, I would have thousands of acres over there um, or more federal land that I could hunt or hike or whatever your thing is. And um, unfortunately, there's never really been an easy way to tell that. And so these paper records, uh, you know, with these easements that have been on file in the federal offices, uh, in the in the local offices, the regional offices, and also in the county offices um, of of just your your local county clerk, um, you can find this information. But it's not it's not easy. It's not quick. It's not definitely not when you're out in the field. And in fact, a lot of even personnel in the federal agencies may or may not know where some of these easements are. And so these what these easements are, they're it's it's something that they're still being acquired here and there it's not like um, they're taking anybody's land it's with willing landowners who have agreed to allow access on a two-track or developed road or whatever it is but it's private to get across their land to get to the federal land and that helps not only us as sportsmen get to some of these other federal lands that we can hunt on but then also helps the land management agencies um, get to their parcels of land easier and help whether it's wildfire management, timber management, uh, grazing management, you name it. Mm-hmm. Um, they can do their jobs a little bit easier and uh, more effectively too. So 
um, the Theodore Roosevelt Conservation Partnership, the TRCP, came to us uh, because we've been producing some documentaries lately. And they said, man, we'd really like to work with you guys on a project where we, uh, we, we interview all the stakeholders. You know, we're interviewing private ranchers. We're interviewing uh, Forest Service personnel, BLM personnel, uh, people from the TRCP, people from companies like Onyx Maps that obviously has an interest in this, um, and, and many others that we're, we're talking to them to get really the, the behind-the-scenes look at what it's like in the offices and, and, and the challenge that they have to uh, have the time and, and resources to digitize all this information from the paper records, and then the opportunities that exist for all of us to access this federal land that's maybe landlocked right now and you can't get to it. And so the antelope uh, license that I drew is in a unit where the access is a nightmare. And uh, yeah. since I've hunted it before, I thought, well, this could be a perfect way uh, to help tell this story. And, and then and then on the flip side, Guy Eastman drew uh, a really good tag in, in Wyoming where it's almost 100% public land and shows when you really don't have to worry about boundaries other than your unit boundary because it's all public. And, uh, and, and what the, how the hunting differs, you know, between uh, the two different units in the same state. Huh. So very interesting. That is going to be interesting, man. Um, th- that's super cool. I, I, you'll keep me, uh, will you keep me kind of posted on that? Um, this, this is a, this whole, Wyoming has this corner crossing thing and I, I'm not totally sure Somebody explained kind of what the history was with it um, in terms of how the railroad sectioned off the land and, and then the landowners bought certain sections and they trade back and forth. And now we got this corner crossing thing. Yeah. And and, and so not super familiar with it, but um, it, it's it's definitely something I'd want to keep a price to. We, we should talk about it down the road, like maybe after your uh, pronghorn hunt. Yeah, that'd be great. And in. in you know, there's been some real enlightening moments for me personally on this whole project because, um, you know, even though I've worked for the Forest Service, it was just for a, a temporary seasonal type job in the summer as a college kid. And um, I, you know, everybody has preconceived notions about everybody else, whether it's people working in an agency or somebody works at the grocery store or whatever. We all think we know what everybody deals with on a day-to-day basis, you know, the old expression, every job's easy to the man who's never done it. Yeah. <laughs> and when, when we have spent time with these, some of these agency personnel, um, particularly the forest service office in Missoula was, man, was it eye opening to see how diligent and painstakingly accurate they have maintained these records since the forest service inception in uh, I believe it was in the late 1800s. And I'm talking thousands and thousands and thousands of records just in this one regional office, let alone the rest of the regions in the country that have been just diligently maintained. And back in the, the microfilm days, they were transferred to that. So there's paper records, microfilm records, now GIS records, and they've been working on these for 20 years. And it's not like they haven't been trying to get this out. It's just that, in it, and I did, I just wasn't prepared for when we were there just last week, how insanely organized they were. And it was, it was really cool to see. And it gave me a whole new appreciation for what some of their staff has been working on for most of their careers. 
Uh, in fact, the, the gentleman that we interviewed, he's, I don't know how old he is. He's probably, I would guess in his forties, maybe upper forties, maybe not that old. I don't know. I'm a terrible judge of age sometimes, but not, he's not an old man, right? He's not, mm-hmm. he's not 90 and he, he is only the third person to work on those records in the past 50 years in that office, hmm. which means wow. there's been three highly dedicated individuals that have made that their life's work. Yeah. And that's amazing to me. That is I mean, amazing. <laughs> no, that is amazing. So, so pronghorn hunt, man, I, I, uh, as we kind of wrap this up, I, uh, I'd love to come down a pronghorn hunt with you one day. We're going to have to do that. I, it's a, it's a long journey in Idaho to get to pronghorn country from the part of Idaho I'm in. So, um, is that, by the way, is that a rifle hunt or is that a bow hunt? Did I lose you there? Are you there? Um, You must be getting some of that uh, Wyoming phone service, man. Oh yeah, it's it's epic. Let me tell you, especially where we live. We we live in the Bermuda Triangle of phone and internet service. <laughs> did you did you say that's? A, <laughs> I know, we we kind of do too. I think uh, we we're in one of the spots in Idaho where it's like it's great one minute and then it's gone the next. But um, yep, are did you say it's a bow or a rifle hunt? Uh, it's a rifle hunt. What rifle are you yep, taking? Uh, actually. Um, I am kind of spoiled. Well, I'm not kind of spoiled. I'm really spoiled. I'm using a rifle that's brand new from a, a savage, a new savage rifle that they're actually debuting this month. Um, that I think on the 24th of oh, October, really? they're they're coming out with a new line of rifles. Ike Eastman and I got to travel to the Savage headquarters in June, and we got to tour the facility and build our own rifles in this new line. And so this is the first hunt that I'm taking this rifle on. Dude, I need a job like yours, man. What the <laughs> heck? I've been eyeballing that Savage 110, uh, that high country. So, oh, yeah. So with, with what you're talking about, maybe I should I should hold off for a minute until that comes out? Well, it wouldn't hurt to give you one more option to make the decision a little harder, I guess. I mean, you can't have too many rifles. Am I right or am I right? That's right. <laughs> yep. No, it's it was pretty yeah. cool to be able to see that. No, that's... That's fantastic. Yeah, it's uh, that's another one. It's kind of like going to that Forest Service office. Just how old that that company is, and how they've been building rifles, and some of the technology that they've been using forever, and also embracing the new going forward is just and how they've melded that all together. Man, it makes you feel pretty insignificant. I mean, you see what these people do each and every day on that on that floor on that production floor. It was. crazy no that's that's fantastic man i I, I geek out on that kind of stuff i'd love to see that so well uh well cool man uh i'm i'm really looking forward to seeing how that goes i i I know i've kept you way over an hour here so i'll i'll definitely let you go um i i just i I was gonna say well how do people find you on instagram or somewhere but you don't have one um is there anywhere else you direct people to go or just eastman's hunting journals did I lose you again? I might have lost you again. Yep, we lo- yeah, there, I'm back now. There you are. There you are. Stand stand right <laughs> where you are and don't move for a minute. <laughs> so, did I lose you again? No, I'm here. Okay. Um, 
Anyway, man, uh, let's let's wrap it up before I lose you totally for good. I I really appreciate you coming on the show. Uh, I I feel like you're you're a wealth of information. I, I I want I want you to be more of a uh, one of those return guests that just you know a couple times a year we get you on and pick your brain. Sound good? Uh, I love it. I love talking with you, man. That'd be awesome. Well, uh, again, I appreciate you coming on. Good luck on the pronghorn hunt, uh, and keep me posted how it goes. And we'll talk soon, brother. Sounds good. You made it. That's the end of the episode. Thank you so much for tuning in. Please make sure you're following us on Instagram at the Western Huntsman and write us a good review at Apple Podcasts. Thanks, guys. See you next time. Stay Western, and I'll see you on.